Welcome to All Saints Community Church Weekly Sermon Podcast. We are a community of worship and formation on mission with Jesus. Our desire for you as you listen is to be transformed by the power of the Holy Spirit as we read the scriptures and to be mobilized to actively bring God's kingdom to the earth. For more information on who we are, visit allsaintsokc.org or follow us on Instagram, Facebook, or Twitter at ASCCOKC. Looking further into Acts chapter 2. And I've got these two dashing young men up here that are going to read the scriptures. This is Luke. This is Caden. And I've referenced this a little bit, gave it an update, but we are doing an internship here at All Saints. And so these guys and Macy, we're going to have others joining this cohort. And we just want to cultivate young leaders. And Liam is doing this in worship, and we just look to our young people as the future leaders of the church. And our desire is to cultivate the kind of church that we can pass off to them and they love it and they can lead it the way that Lord leads them. So these guys are going to read from Acts 2. Caden, you're starting. This is verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, raised his voice and addressed them, men of Judah and all who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and listen to what I say. Indeed, the, uh, this are not dr- these are not drunk, as you suppose, for it is only nine o'clock in the morning. No, this is what was spoken through the prophet Joel in the last days. It will be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit upon all flesh, and my sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even upon my slaves, both men and women, in those days I will pour out my spirit. And they shall prophesy, and I will show uh, portents in the heaven above, and signs of on the earth below. Blood and fire and smoky mist, the sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood. Before the coming of the Lord, great and glorious day. Then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. You that are Israelites, listen to what I say to you. I say, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with deeds of power, wonders, and signs that God did, that God did through him among you. As you yourselves know, this man handed over to you according to the definite, definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hand of those outside the law. But God raised him up among freed him from death because it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand, so that I will not be shaken. Therefore my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. Moreover, my flesh will live in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One experience corruption. You have made known to me the ways of life, and you will make me full of gladness with your presence. Fellow Israelites, 
I might say to you confidently of our ancestor David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us this day. Since he was a prophet, he knew that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would put one of his descendants on the throne. Foreseeing this, David spoke of the resurrection of the Messiah, saying, He was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh experience corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that all of us are witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you both see and hear. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Therefore, let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made him both Lord and Messiah, this Jesus whom you crucified. This is the word of God. Thanks be to God. Thank you, guys. Well, this is the first Christian sermon, so we read the whole thing. And we're getting more and more accustomed to longer readings of Scripture, aren't we? We're going to walk through this passage. We're going to see a, a couple of things. We're going to see that not only is it the first Christian message, but it also lays out for us the way Christian preaching and teaching should be done. It's biblical, right? Peter is explaining the scriptures, and everything he does is rooted in the Hebrew Bible, the Old Testament. And he's walking people through it and interpreting it and pointing to the person of Jesus. Before we look at this, I just want to pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Pentecost, the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. We pray today that you would open our eyes to behold wonderful things in your word and that we would see new and beautiful things about the person of Jesus. We just say, Jesus, you are glorious, you're beautiful, you're amazing, and you're worth fixing our attention on. We pray in your name, Jesus. Amen. So last week we looked at Pentecost, Acts 2, 1 to 13, and we saw the Spirit of God coming and suddenly on the church as they had been waiting, and we saw that the nations that were gathered there, the Jews and the diaspora, those who were dispersed or spread abroad, responded in different ways as the Spirit of God came on the church and they spoke in tongues and they were known languages to these people that were gathered from all over the Roman Empire. And so today we're going to see the aftermath of that. We're going to see the person, Peter, stand up and explain what has been happening. And the believer's tongue speaking had attracted a large crowd, and now Peter stood as the spokesperson for the 12 apostles, the team. And I just want us to remember for a moment here who this guy is. Do you remember him? The rather obstinate, loudmouth guy that told Jesus he would never deny him or forsake him. And then sure enough, what did he do? Denied him and forsook him. And so Jesus restored him at the end of John's gospel. We read about that, and here he is, filled with the Holy Spirit. He had been broken. He had denied Christ. And so this is a message in itself. 
this is the kind of God that we serve and the church is made up of really broken people, some of whom who have almost lost their faith. Amen? And this is the spokesperson. This is the chief apostle at this moment is the one that denied Jesus three times. Said, I do not know him. I do not know that man. And now he is saying, I do know him. And I'm filled with the Holy Spirit and I've been restored by him. So Peter in verse 15 here is clarifying that the Christians, because the Spirit of God has been so stirring among them and they're speaking in tongues and proclaiming God's mighty deeds and some of the folks there watching said, these people have to be drunk. And so at verse 15, Peter is standing up and says, they're not drunk. It's too early in the morning. And I think there's some humor in this. It's nine in the morning. There's no pubs or bars open in Jerusalem at 9 a.m. Then he goes on in verses 17 through 21 to clarify, as he's introducing this message here, he's clarifying what they're seeing here. The descent of the Holy Spirit, the speaking of tongues, is actually a fulfillment of biblical prophecy. It's what Joel the prophet prophesied around 800 years before Christ. If you look at the verses here that Caden read, speaks of the last days, God says that he will pour out his spirit on all flesh. And what does the text say? It's for everyone. The young, the old, the male, the female, the slaves, the servants, across all strata, all categories of people, all divisions, all the hierarchies that men set up. The Lord says, I'm pouring out my spirit on all Christ followers. Friends, that's good news for us. It also mentions multiple times young people. And you think about Jesus. How old was he when his ministry started? 30 years old. Boy, that never sounded younger to me. He was young. He was young, and he was surrounded by young disciples, probably his age, some of them even younger. So from the beginning, the Jesus movement, the book of Acts is showing us that young people aren't relegated. Ah, we got to let them grow up, and when they're 40 or 50, then they can do something. The text is showing us through the prophet Joel, that the Spirit of God is poured out even on the young ones. Amen? And so that's something that we prize here. We believe that from the youngest to the oldest, the Spirit of God has been poured out and we all get to participate in the life of the church, the work of the kingdom of God. This at verse 19 and 20 gets particularly interesting In addition to pouring out his spirit on all flesh, God is going to show signs in heaven and on earth that signal the day of the Lord. This gets technical, so I just want to make a few comments here. And what the Apostle Peter here is saying is this is that. He's watched the coming of the Messiah And that in itself is a fulfillment of prophecy and what Jesus does and who he is, is initiating a whole new era. Now something began to click for me this week. So I just want us to pause here for a moment. An entire new epic, an entire new 
era in human history is being initiated right here with the incarnation of Jesus, the coming of Christ, his life, his ministry, and now the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. It is announcing to the entire world that the messianic era is here. Messiah has come and human history will never be the same. And that's what Joel was anticipating 800 years before Christ. All kinds of things here that the portents and signs in heaven and on earth, commentators think that some of those signs are through the very ministry of Jesus. The signs and the wonders and the miracles were part of the fulfillment of what Joel was prophesying. I thought this was rather beautiful. One commentator was also talking about the signs that attended the crucifixion of Jesus. Friends, the messianic era, the age to come, the kingdom of God was breaking in in an unprecedented way through the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. One person says this, little more than seven weeks earlier, the people of Jerusalem had seen the darkening of the sun during the early afternoon of Good Friday. And later in that same afternoon, the full moon may have well also been blood red in the sky. These phenomena are now interpreted as signs of the advent of the day of the Lord, a day of judgment to be sure, but more immediately the day of God's salvation to all who called on his name. So something happened with the first coming of Jesus. The Messiah was here. The messianic era began. The clock is ticking. And you and I are living in this interim time. A time when people call on his name and they're saved. Now is the time for people. Now is the time for you. Now is the time for me to call on the name of the Lord to be saved. Because friends, the day is coming when he won't be saving, he'll be judging. Maybe not a very popular message these days, but it's biblical. And the text says that. Call on the name of the Lord now. Do not wait. Messiah has come. The king is here. And it's clear. The gospel is clear. Call on his name. Be saved. Be saved from yourself. Be saved from your sin. Because one day you will stand before him and give account for your deeds that you do in your body. It's very sobering, isn't it? And we'll see later on that people are cut to the heart by these words. Verse 21 here, calling on the name of the Lord. This is why we pray the Jesus prayer. I've invited many of you to pray the Jesus prayer, those 10 words. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me. We're calling on the name of the Lord. We're not begging. We're not pleading. We're receiving his mercy through that. Friends, this is what theologians call high Christology. High Christology. We're seeing from the very beginning that the early church believed that Jesus was the Lord. He's on equal footing with Yahweh with God. This is why Jesus was called a blasphemer 
because he claimed this. And the early church says it, call on the name of the Lord and be saved. It's the Lord Jesus. The second thing that Peter addresses after verse 21, he moves into another gear and he begins to explain that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And again, it's all based on scripture. So we have Joel here, right? We have Joel chapter two and Peter rooting everything that he's saying in Joel chapter two and then he's gonna move on to Psalm 16 and Psalm 110. And he's going to reflect aloud with passion and with fire on what the biblical text says and what it says in particular about Jesus of Nazareth. And so he is modeling again for the church, the teachers and the preachers in the church are to root what we say in the scriptures. And secondly, it's to be fixed on the person of Jesus. When we share, when we preach, when we teach, when we gather in homes and we do Christian teaching and look into the message, it is fixed on the person of Jesus, who Peter says is indeed Lord and Messiah. Look at verse 22 here. He's addressing the Israelites. And he's saying, listen to what I have to say. Jesus of Nazareth. What was it that was written above Christ's head on the cross, on that little sign that they made? Do you remember? Jesus the Nazarene. It was actually meant to be a term of scorn. Really saying Jesus the nobody from nowhere claims to be the king. And so Peter is taking that pejorative term, that negative term, and he's saying, you know what? He's Jesus the Nazarene, but he's also Lord and Messiah. He's flipping it on its head here, saying, you mock Christ. People have misunderstood him, but this one from the ghetto of Jerusalem happens to be the Messiah and the Lord of the universe. Peter's making it clear from the beginning here that Christianity, Christian preaching, is Christ. Our faith is not just an ethic. It's not just moral behavior, but it's a work of God through the person of Jesus. Look there at the end of verse 22. This is a man, Jesus of Nazareth, attested to you by God with deeds of power and wonders and signs. So Peter is saying here, Jesus was put on full display for all of you to see. He was backed by God. God gave the exhibition that this, in fact, was his sent one. The main theme here is Jesus is Lord and Messiah. And what we find here is the pattern, and we'll see it over and over again in the book of Acts. This is the pattern for all the apostles' teaching and preaching. It will touch on things like what we're seeing here. An account of the ministry, the death, the resurrection of Jesus. A citation of the Old Testament scriptures that point forward to the Messiah and that are fulfilled. And then a call to repentance, which we'll look at next week. Friends, it's rather expository, really, isn't it? Peter's not just coming up with themes or ideas. He's walking through just a few scriptures and giving the plain reading and plain meaning and modeling for what the apostles' teaching and preaching looks like and, I think, what it looks like to read the Bible thoughtfully 
leaning on the person of the Holy Spirit. So he begins to give an explanation of the ministry and the death and the resurrection of Jesus. And he says at verse 23, look at this. This man, Jesus, handed over to you according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of those outside the law. So Peter is saying it wasn't just the Jews, but it was the Jews in cooperation with the Romans. The Jews couldn't kill anyone. The Jews couldn't crucify someone. It was the Jews handing him over to the Romans, those without the law, without the Torah, the law of God, and they're the ones who crucified Christ. But they were in agreement on this. Friends, this is uh, challenging here to think about it, but Paul says that nothing is outside of God's plan. Nothing is outside of God's plan. It was actually God's plan that the Messiah would come and he foreknew, the word is actually prognosis, prognosis here. God knew that people would respond this way and God knew that he would be rejected by his own and God knew that the Romans would kill him and put him to death and this was God's plan. We could spend quite a bit of time looking at that and how does God's foreknowledge work out and God's will, God's sovereign will and human choice. And if you can figure that out, you can set up coffee with me and explain it to me. Not going to be able to do it in a few minutes, but this again is another place where the human intellect bows before the greatness and mystery and awesomeness of God. It's both of those things. And you read it in the scripture, God knew God predetermined it. The scriptures even say that Christ is the lamb slain when? Before the foundation of the world. So God has eternally known and decreed that Christ would come and that he would die and that he would be raised from the dead. Jesus said this in Luke 24, didn't he? You remember he was walking alongside those disciples on the road to Emmaus. They were misunderstanding the scriptures and Jesus said it had to be this way. The scriptures teach that Messiah would come and he would be rejected, that he would die, he would be raised. Friends, this is the apostolic gospel. This is the essence of the one that we're dealing with. The crucified, resurrected, ascended Jesus, and it's God's plan. The text says at verse 24, it was impossible for Christ to be held in its power, in the power of death. It was impossible because God had planned it, God's power coursed through his body during his ministry, and God's power coursed through his dead body and brought him to life. This is Jesus, the Messiah. One person said this, and this spoke deeply to me. Here is the key fact stressed time and again by these first preachers. They did not need to prove that the resurrection had happened. They simply proclaimed it and bore witness to it. Friends, that's our role. We don't need to prove anything. Now, do we give reasoned arguments and look at the scriptures and look at historians like Josephus and others, early historians who actually spoke of Christ and talked about the swirl that was around him and the stir that he caused in the ancient world? Yes, but... In the end, we give witness. Christ is risen. Christ is risen. Deal with that world. 
Amen? And I've shared with you openly, I talk about it, that I have struggled myself with trying to figure some of these things out. I read the Apostles' Creed and grapple with parts of it. How could that be, Lord? I identify with Thomas oftentimes. I struggle to believe these things, and in the end, I have to get on my knees before him and say, it is. It is what it is. It's in the word of God. Christ is risen, and my little mind and heart cannot wrap itself around it. Christ is risen, and we simply proclaim it and bear witness to it. Look at the next verse here. Peter cites Old Testament scripture there at verse 25. Psalm 16, 8 through 11. Again, Caden read this. And we get to see the way that the early church read scripture. The way Peter is poring over the Bible and realizing that he has been around the living word and that he has the opportunity to search the scriptures and now find things about Christ. And this is kind of a prophetic typology here. What does that mean? It means that the early church saw in the experience of David a future experience of the greater David. So the text applies to David, some of it does, but then the whole crux of his argument is that ultimately this points to the Messiah, that he would not be abandoned. And then he's going to go on, Peter is, isn't he? And he's going to say, this text can't apply to King David because we have his tomb with us and I can go and visit the place where his dead body is buried. So how could a text like this apply to King David? It must reach out beyond King David to the greater David, the son of David, the Messiah. And so what's being argued here is that God would make known to Messiah the ways of life and make him full of joy in his presence. God had sworn this even from the beginning of Luke, because we've seen that Luke and Acts are one scroll, right? One book together. Even from the beginning of Luke's gospel, Gabriel appears to Mary and says that her son will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord will give him the throne of his ancestor David. So Jesus is king even from his birth. Look at verse 31 here. Peter reiterates that David foresaw and prophesied these things. And then he points yet to another. We've had Joel 2, we've had Psalm 16, and now he points to another text, Psalm 110. And he's going to argue that King David saw and prophesied the resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus at verse 33. He is exalted to the right hand of God, the supreme place of honor. And it's from that place that he pours out the Spirit of God. Friends, the resurrection, the ascension, these things are not symbols and metaphors. Sometimes in academic circles where I ran for many years, I would have fellow professors and theologians who were uncomfortable with supernatural events like this. The resurrection, the ascension, the exaltation of Jesus. So they had to find poetic ways to read it and say it's actually symbolic. 
It's metaphorical. But as you read this, friends, does this look metaphorical? It certainly doesn't. It was a real event that changed the direction of these people's lives forever. Something happened. They were doubters. They were deniers. And something happened. The resurrected Lord Jesus appeared to them and redirected their entire lives. It is not symbolic. It is not metaphorical. And I read texts like this, and frankly, it's like a bucket of cold water thrown right in the face of culture. Because we like deconstruction, and we like doubt, and we like skepticism, and we like sanitizing things like the resurrection. But friends, it is what it says. It is the resurrection of Jesus. And I've mentioned this before, but if this is difficult to understand that a man could be born of a virgin, that he could be crucified, resurrected, that he could actually ascend to the Father, it should be difficult to comprehend. This one around human history revolving, he entered human history in a unique way and he left in a unique way, and he's coming back in a unique way. There's no one like the Messiah, the Lord Jesus, and he's the fulfillment of all that the prophets anticipated. Amen? This is who dwells among us. This is who we serve. We are the body of Christ with the power of the resurrection among us each time we're together. Peter makes one other point about this. And then he draws his argument to a close here. And we're going to look at that next week. But look at verse 36. So much to point out. In a text like this, the first sermon preached by an apostle, we'll see next week that the church was devoted to teaching like this in Acts 2.42. What was it that the church was giving themselves to? Preaching and teaching like this. Centered on the person of Jesus. Centered on his life, his ministry, his death, his resurrection. Look at how he ends it at verse 36 here. Peter says this, Therefore let the entire house of Israel know with certainty that God has made Jesus both Lord and and Messiah, the one that you've crucified. So he is saying to all the people in Jerusalem, as representatives of the entire nation of Israel, know with certainty that God has made this one Lord and Messiah. Now, there's some heresy that springs from a text like this. Some of you might wonder, what does it mean to be made Lord and Christ. Can I geek out for a moment? Is that all right with a little theological geekdom here? There is something called adoptionist Christology. And some people would read a text like this. Some folks in the early church, especially the first 125 years, and they read a text like this and said, see, Jesus was a normal man, and it was only at his resurrection and ascension that God made him something different. God made him Lord and Christ. Do you see it? That is called heresy. 
the idea that the human Jesus was somehow adopted or coronated as the Son of God at his resurrection, at his baptism, or his ascension, for that matter. Jesus did not become something. It was at that moment God was announcing. He was establishing the fact, the final fact, that this man, the divine word of God, is in fact the Lord and Messiah. One person says, not, of course, that Jesus became Lord in Christ only at the time of his ascension, for he was and claimed to be both of these things throughout his public ministry. It is rather now that God exalted him to be in reality and power what he already was by right. Jesus, Lord and Messiah. And so he sets for the course of the church for the rest of all time in our teaching, our preaching, our worship, and what the creeds articulate, like the creed we talk about, the Apostles' Creed, these very facts are rooted in texts like this. One creed that we haven't talked about or recited yet, it's called the Nicene Creed from the third century. Listen to what it says. Based on a text like this, Christ is true God from true God, of the same essence as the Father, incarnate by the Holy Spirit, fully human, fully divine. So any views that do not get this, any views that twist the apostles' teaching and preaching here are unorthodox and off track. Friends, this is beautiful. This is, again, no one like him in human history. The man Jesus, the God-man, fully human, fully God, resurrected in the body, coming back one day, and we'll all stand before him. Even the doubters, even the deconstructionists, all of us including his beloved bride, us. Why don't we stand? We'll see next week. We're kind of cutting things short because Peter ends not only with explaining Pentecost and then describing the person of Jesus and his words cut to the heart of his hearers and how many come to the faith as a result of his preaching. 3,000 people, we'll see that next week. We're going to look at the call that he gives, and then we'll see the community that begins to emerge and what they're devoting themselves to. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for Peter's message at Pentecost that you took a doubter, a denier, a broken man, and filled him with holy fire, with the truth of your word and with boldness and courage, and he and the others turn the world upside down. And we pray for that same anointing to be realized in our lives, that you would fill us with holy fire like never before as the Lord turns the world upside down again for his glory, gathering people into his church. And we pray that in the name of Jesus. Amen. Man, is the word of God wonderful? Friends, I'm inviting you each week this is amazing stuff. So on Sunday, I just want to whet your appetite a little bit. Give yourself to this. Get a wonderful study Bible. We have some out in the resource center. If you can't afford it, come see me. I will get you a study Bible so that you can dig in every day. Make time for 
sitting at the feet of Jesus, reading his word. Next week we're going to finish this chapter, so perhaps you can read the end of chapter 2. And then we have on our website, if you look at allsaintsokc.org backslash resources, there's a whole menu of Bible study, Bible reading plans. Friends, we're people of the book, aren't we? People of the book and people of the spirit.